Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Earlier today, I did a show with Samuel Friedman, a Columbia University historian, uh, on Hubert Humphrey's iconic speech at the 1948 Democratic Convention about race, which dramatically challenged and changed the party's attitude to civil rights. In keeping with this theme, last week I went up to the FDR Museum uh, in Hyde Park in upstate New York, uh, which was holding uh, an exhibit on FDR's civil rights record, a rather checkered record, and I talked to the director of the FDR library, William Harris, he's just been appointed to this post, not just about FDR's record on civil rights, but more broadly on FDR's record as American president, what he did and didn't achieve in the four terms that he was American president. William Harris, the director, uh, of the FDR Library up in Hyde Park, New York, a man dedicating his life to understanding FDR's legacy. Uh, Bill, we've done many shows on FDR. In broad terms, how do you interpret his legacy? Before we specifically get on to the question of FDR and African-American rights. Well, I like to think of the work we do and the work I've done throughout my career is less about legacy and more about really uh, lessons and the preservation of the evidence from uh, individuals and from periods and systems that help us, you know, um, interpret the past and learn lessons and look towards the future. You at the moment, and I spent an hour before you and I sat down talking, looking around the exhibit on FDR and African American rights, or perhaps absence of rights in his four terms as president. Uh, the exhibit is excellent, uh, profoundly enlightening, but also profoundly disturbing. Remind our viewers of what life was like in terms of rights, economic, political, cultural, for the majority of African Americans when FDR came to power in 1932. Uh, as we do in the exhibit, and I think is really important for people today, um, is to um, understand that the era we're talking about in the 1930s and 40s was one in certain parts of the country of rigid and legalized segregation and oppression of African Americans. Uh, it is important also to note that elsewhere in the country uh, the same the same systems more or less uh, often not as overtly legalized but certainly de facto segregation in many areas uh, was true across the country, especially in terms of housing, access to certain services, and the general and prevailing viewpoints in popular culture. So it is within that environment that President uh, Roosevelt assumes office. But I would also say in terms of uh, the exhibit that what we're trying to do is turn the conversation around and not merely talk about the President Mrs. Roosevelt's impact on black Americans, but on black Americans who are advocating for their rights 
and who are really pushing the government, because they are, and people often aren't aware of that, what are their impacts on the President and Mrs. Roosevelt and the administration? Uh, one of uh, the more interesting aspects, I don't know, the whole exhibit is outstanding, as I said, I would strongly suggest all our viewers and listeners to come up, come up to Hyde Park, New York, and, and look at the exhibit for themselves. One of the more interesting uh, beginnings was uh, the first exhibit suggesting that FDR hadn't done a great deal of thinking about the position of black Americans when he came to power in 1932. For better or worse, it's not necessarily a critique, it's just observing and recognizing reality. Is that true, Bill? Well, I would I think that that is true, that um, especially growing up here in the Hudson Valley, uh, he was of the upper class um, with inherited wealth. It, it wasn't a world that he intersected with, really. When he moved to Washington, D.C. Uh, to be Assistant Secretary of the Navy during uh, Woodrow Wilson's administration, uh, that was probably the first time in any real way that he had come into constant contact with a segregated society. It, it is important to note that Washington, D.C. was very much a southern city, and it was, in fact, segregated. And President Wilson certainly was, uh, you know, by any measure of today, but certainly, um, <coughs> excuse me, exceptionally conservative on race issues and uh, fostered segregation within the government um, and certainly didn't argue against it in, in general society. Uh, and like many upper class whites, uh, his primary experience, at least in face-to-face in, in -face, uh experience with black Americans was as maids and chauffeurs and butlers. Is that true of FDR? That's correct. When he moved to Washington, um, it, it, the Roosevelt's changed their household uh, domestic staff to African Americans. That was uh, common in Washington, D.C., and uh, that wasn't as common uh, up here in the Hudson Valley in the Northeast. And so you are correct that that interaction was primarily in a domestic arena and not uh, within a broader public setting, which was limited anyway in terms of what that inter interaction or engagement would have been in the first place. When one thinks of FDR and race in particular, one also thinks of Eleanor Roosevelt. She is richly represented in the exhibit. Um, I was also struck with the fact that Eleanor herself, and this was a little bit more surprising, hadn't given a great deal of thought to the plight of African-Americans until she became First Lady in 1932. Perhaps you might say something about that. I think um, what struck us and what I think is really an important aspect when we speak about the Roosevelts and issues surrounding black Americans and equality in this country is the evolution of these individuals. They were on different paths in their thinking, but certainly their evolution was from, from maybe non-thinking or to just sort of a uh, a disregard or, or, or um, disinterest, uh, but over time to recognizing that th there, was, there was something wrong in this country fundamentally regarding that. Eleanor Roosevelt's transition is frankly quite, quite um, striking because by the 1920s certainly she had begun to um, recognize the true disparities and the need for action and the, the essential essential nature of recognizing each uh, American citizen's individual dignity and their right to a role in our society. So by the early 1930s, certainly um, 
these issues were in awareness, President Roosevelt, um, of course, is a politician. Mrs. Roosevelt is a politician in her own way, too. But they're both approaching these issues very differently. And, um, it, but it's kind of striking how those intersect and actually advance policy and change and alter their own views looking forward. Well, of course, Roosevelt came to power and the terrible years of the Great Depression. One of the other areas that your exhibit stresses is that the experience of African Americans was different from whites. It was worse. Uh, they were, uh, people talk about the forgotten people of the 1930s, but they were, they were forgotten of the forgotten. They were, they were footnotes to the footnote. Why was the experience of African Americans so much more dramatic, so much more miserable in, in, in the Great Depression? Well, it, you know, the, the plight of many African Americans in this country um, was already bad in the 1920s uh, and, and, and previously. The Great Depression only further, further, you know, darken the position of many African-Americans in, in society. When you're already low on the rung, especially in agriculture and in, you know, other aspects of society, when, when the economic system begins to collapse, you're, you're you know, you're, you're immediately going to move further down the, the um, into disparities and difficulties um, economically, politically, across the board. So, um, but, but I do want to make the point too that if we only look at um, uh, the position of African Americans in our culture from the perspective, uh, from our perspective, then, then we see only sometimes oppression. And it's good to see that, don't, don't get me wrong. But, but what we also should respect is, is these communities are, are vibrant and strong. Um, remarkably strong, considering the world uh, that many of them occupied and, and the issues and the challenges they faced. But what's impressive is that these strong and vibrant communities uh, really began to organize. They were taking charge of their own destiny, and they had. So I think it's important for us to also think about it from the other perspective and not just think about it as oppression down, but also is work and is, is organization and is, is determination to um, move forward and demand their place in culture. In our Remind society. us of the politics of 1932 in terms of African Americans and FDR. FDR, of course, was a Democrat. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a Northern Democrat. He wasn't uh, an overt racist. Um, and yet, the Democratic Party was, in part at least, rooted in the South uh, on uh, a Jim Crow system, electing Jim Crow politicians, or at least politicians who wanted to reinforce uh, Jim Crow. Oh, well, uh, it, what many Americans today may not realize is uh, black Americans were aligned with the Republican Party the party of Lincoln, the party of emancipation. Uh, by 1932, and, and as you say, uh, the Southern Democrats were exceptionally powerful uh, within the Democratic Party because they were consistently reelected, and so they achieved a seniority and therefore the key chairmanships of major 
um, committees, or at least the um, minority leaders of those when the Republicans were in control of the Houses of Congress. So within the Democratic Party, uh, the Southern Democrats wielded a great deal of um, force. However, by 1932, <coughs> pardon me, and within the, um, within the atmosphere and in the context of the, the Depression, uh, questions began to be raised is, uh, what, what have the Republicans done for the black community, and certainly the Democrats wanted to exploit that, but the, it's important to remember too that large uh, numbers of um, black Americans were down south, in fact, where their voting was either eliminated or restricted severely. Therefore, the voting block and power of um, black Americans certainly wasn't as strong, but in the 1920s, and as it um, increased in the 1930s, the movement north by many black Americans during the Great Migration uh, moved centers of power to northern cities where people did have a greater franchise and were able to um, participate in the political system. And that began, began to change the political calculation in terms of what the government might do and, and what uh, political parties were um, willing to commit to. It's a complicated thing, and of course FDR was a complicated man, and he understood the complicated world of the 1930s uh, with more subtlety and sophistication than perhaps anyone. That's his greatest legacy. How focused was he, in your view, on politically trying to manipulate the southern power block within the party to uh, do deals to enable rights for African Americans. Of course, he couldn't change anything overnight. He understood that as well as anyone. But he was able to operate in this complicated, almost Byzantine uh, system of American politics, the American Democratic Party, which was this union of white racists and northern liberals. Yeah, I mean, he is, by any standard, a remarkable politician. Uh, and, and that is not anything to be said necessarily in the pejorative either, because he understood how uh, the systems work, and he recognized what his challenges were in terms of enacting his policies. And President Roosevelt certainly approached it, I would say, from the perspective of, you know, affecting broad change through government engagement um, in all aspects of society in order to establish ultimately a social safety net, but also to give access to people in a way to opportunities that hadn't been afforded to them through any kind of government involvement in the past. Figuring into that equation is the very obvious uh, legal, economic, and social disparity of black Americans. So I, I would say at times, he probably would have been pleased not to have to deal with certain issues, so he wouldn't have to worry so much about Southern Democrats. But that political calculus of how you balance what you describe, the challenge and the tensions within the party, was always there. Uh, but what's interesting, too, in that political environment is the independence and the role that Eleanor Roosevelt had um, individually um, as First Lady and beyond that is a social progressive and her engagement with black Americans in the way that she could push in a way that other people could not push because of her personal relationship with the president and place things on his desk and, and nudge him and bring issues to his attention. Uh, 
so within this environment, he does have, in fact, many progressives in government within the New Deal, just as he does many conservatives, uh, many conservative Democrats, especially on the race uh, issue or issues. And so there's this tension running all through the, uh, frankly, all through the 30s and 40s. He's trying to enact broad, broad social measures, and he sees sometimes the plight and the issues of black Americans as, as something that must be balanced against a broader political um, and social policy effort. Whereas Mrs. Roosevelt appreciated the politics, but she didn't necessarily view it in those terms. She viewed it in the human terms. Let me say this. She viewed it in the terms of what black Americans rightfully deserved um, in a different way than President Roosevelt did. Yeah, no one's ever accused uh, Eleanor Roosevelt of being Machiavellian. Uh, well, FDR was Machiavellian in, 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 in the best and perhaps in some ways in the worst senses. Well, I'm going to uh, disagree to some extent. Machiavellian, of course, um, comes with all its uh, negative connotations. I would prefer to frame it more as politically astute. Um, and Eleanor Roosevelt was that. I think sometimes she gets pegged into a category of of um, a professional do-gooder, someone we can agree with by today's, certainly, standards, although those standards were really in place then, if you want to be frank about it. People knew that lynching was wrong. People knew that racial disparities were wrong. Uh, how you talked about it and what you did about it was different, certainly, in those times. So I think it, it is, we need to recognize that Eleanor Roosevelt was a politician in her own right. She certainly knew, also, when the president wouldn't be pushed on an issue. She, at that time, was certainly more of an incrementalist, to be sure. But, but to suggest she wasn't a politician who didn't appreciate the system within which she would work, I think does a disservice to, uh, to her appreciation that if you could get people within the system, then within the system, you could begin to enact um, a different kind of change. You could begin to actually change the system. Another of the things about your exhibit that I was very impressed with was it wasn't just about FDR and Allen. It wasn't just about rich, white liberals with some conscience handing right. down power like aristocrats to the people. It's also an exhibit about uh, African-American political, an African-American political community that was coming alive. There's a term, the Black Cabinet Bill. What does that mean? Perhaps you might point also to some of the, the great African-American political, cultural figures who acquired a voice in the FDR years. Well, I think it, that is exactly the point that we wanted to make. We did, in fact, want to shift the narrative to focus on what people are doing when they, when they actually um, seize opportunity, make opportunity and uh, work to build political organizations, because that is what the story is. We think of the civil rights movement as something in the 1950s and 60s. Many, many people do, at the very least. Well, the civil rights movement began much earlier, and the people who set in motion the very means often to accomplish uh, what occurred later, that, that began in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. So people like Mary McLeod Bethune mm -hmm. was key and instrumental 
and organizing black women's groups into a cohesive and politically forceful uh, body of organizations. And her friendship with Eleanor Roosevelt, which was developed over years, was also instrumental in, um, in advancing Eleanor Roosevelt's views and in getting Eleanor Roosevelt as well to place issues in front of the president. So Mary McLeod Bethune, without question, and she also ultimately assumed a position within a New Deal organization. And Dale uh, Watts has written an yeah. excellent book about Bethune, and I know that she's been involved in putting this yes. together. And that brings me to the Black Cabinet, which the Black Cabinet, sometimes people think, oh, well, maybe that's a group of people that President Roosevelt put in place to serve as advisors. When actually the Black Cabinet were people who had gained positions within the New Deal and within the government, it was, it was, black, it was, it was the, the, those black leaders who were coming together um, to, to speak and to form a voice within government to um, advance issues through the various, you know, that very, very Byzantine, that word you used earlier, world of government. Um, also, outside of government, we, we can't uh, speak about this here without speaking about um, Walter White who was head of the NAACP for over 20 years and was a, a strong and vibrant uh, advocate for black Americans and, and especially uh, for anti-lynching legislation, which during that era was one of the key social and political um, uh, policy efforts, uh, anti-lynching legislation. Um, of the 1930s and 40s, 20s, 30s and 40s, I would say. And then we also have A. Philip Randolph, who was uh, one of the primary union leaders um, within the black community. He was um, an immense presence and a strong political force. And it's important to realize, I think, and to really acknowledge uh, that his role in the development of the March on Washington concept uh, in the late 30s and early 40s um, and the political power that a march on Washington, the very notion of it, wielded within the, um, frankly, the white power structure and, and the leadership of this country who were trying to balance issues uh, politically. So you've got just these three figures, uh, these three very notable figures, uh, whose roles are, are just immense and transcendent during this period. Martin Luther King, of course, famously noted that he believed that the arc of, just, um, mm -hmm. the arc of uh, justice bends towards progress in the long run. In, in terms of the long run of the, the narrative of the, the Roosevelt presidencies, the four presidencies between 1932 and 1945, do we see that uh, arc of justice mm -hmm. bending positively upwards? I think we when do. it comes to, of course, the African American issue of rights for black people in America, I think we do, and I think there there was progress made. But you know, every time there's progress made, what you also realize is where there's work need to that that needs to be done. It always throws into sharp relief where the gaps are, uh, and also I believe there there um, a, a sort of the notion of incremental change begins to transform over uh, over the 30s and 40s so that when you get into the 50s and 60s the notion of direct action uh, becomes um, the, the driving force within the civil rights movement. So again that's part of that bending, that's part of how you, you advocate and struggle and frankly then begin to protest towards what you want. And I think what's also important coming from that period in terms of that arc um, 
that you, you see through that period is um, the notion that any progress made and any rights, um, any rights attained aren't rights that are guaranteed. So that, that, that struggle in the bending of that arc requires um, constant, constant effort and engagement um, throughout society. Bill, let's end on a less positive note with the Second World War. Uh, we've done some shows about the profoundly unjust nature of the U.S. Army. How aware was FDR in particular of the way in which blacks were treated in, in the Army? And what did he try to do uh, throughout the Second World War? I mean, he was president after all right up until almost the end of the war. What did he try and do to enable black soldiers and white soldiers to be treated equally? Well, it, it, this is complex, uh, but it's also striking and, uh, and, and concerning, but also hopeful, uh, during the war because, you know, America's um, advocating uh, ideals and ideas of freedom and equity in its fight against fascism, um, in its rightful fight against fascism. But what that did, of course, was highlight the disparities and the injustice within our own country. President Roosevelt certainly was aware and um, keenly aware, uh, because black Americans certainly made him aware, as did uh, other progressives within the government uh, or within society, of the, um, the obvious contradictions. Uh, there was a strong and prevailing view during this era that the army and the military should not be, as, as it was often phrased, uh, a, 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 a place for social experimentation. Uh, however, uh, because of the um, advocacy by black Americans and the starkness of the injustice that was brought about during the war and efforts to um, e equalize or to bring, um, to recognize um, those disparities certainly became very uh, central to many conversations about uh, how the conduct of the war in terms of how we structure our military occurred. Uh, I would say that progress was made in terms of home front um, uh, employment and, um, and uh, the arrangement of industry and its relationship to the war effort in the federal government. I would say that there was some progress made in terms of uh, the recognition that black Americans had um, um, the skill sets, the knowledge, the um, equal abilities, in fact sometimes the greater abilities, to serve alongside white Americans and to fight the war against fascism. Uh, but I think it, it laid the groundwork, although I would, I would argue not as strongly as it should have been, so that in the post-war world, uh, President Truman could ultimately desegregate the military. 